What does it mean to be perfect? Amy Jacober is a founding member and faculty of the Sonoran Theological Group, which offers alternative, affordable theological education. We sat down to talk about her recent book, entitled Redefining Perfect, the interplay between theology and disability. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Amy, thank you so much for doing this today. Thank you, Sherry. It's good to be here. So we are talking about your book, Redefining Perfect, and clearly this book was written because there is a problem that needs to be addressed. So can you set the stage and talk a little bit about um, what you've seen and why this book really needed to be written? Yeah, I think part of even just how, how I got to this book helps understand that. I enter the conversation about disability and theology from the youth ministry world. That was where I serve. That's what I have done um, and still what I do. Mm-hmm. That said, I started maybe almost 20 years ago, started um, just had my eyes open that there weren't teens with disabilities in the ministries where I was serving. I started being a little bit more aware of the community and started asking questions. But the honest answer is what I was told by most of my colleagues is that's a niche market. It's a niche group. There aren't that many people with disabilities is what I was told. And we're not equipped. We can't afford. I mean, there were a thousand reasons why I was told that nobody wanted to have that conversation and nobody was interested in it. And so because my actual training is theology, but then my application was youth ministry, And so my perpetual conversation, and and I would still say that my contention is most of us, the theology we hold to is developed during our adolescent and formative years. It's the same with music that pretty much, I mean, there's always going to be somebody who will prove me wrong and it'll be an exception, but people will say the best music is when they were in high school and in their 20s. And then everything else is inferior and it's why it's not as good. But I think theology- Or it's just mimicking the good stuff. Well, of course. Um, I think theology is much the same. So what you learn in those formative years is what shapes you for the rest of your life. And so I realized, wait a minute, we not only don't have people with disabilities in the youth ministries I was seeing, but we don't have many people with disabilities or there's always a section, like off in a corner, And so I started asking that question and didn't have a lot of conversation partners. And so I think, thankfully, um, I I got rejected more times than I could begin to tell you on this book. I started pitching the book probably 15 years ago and talked to every major publisher more than once and was told there was no audience, there was no money in it, there was no interest, there was nobody who wanted to have this conversation. And did that run counter to your experience working in the church, or did that resonate with what your experience had been? That's a great question. Everybody was willing to tolerate my bringing it up, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't finding people who really wanted to engage. That, That kind of ties into my teaching, both at university and seminary level. I, every place I've ever taught, I've asked, can we have a course in disability ministries, what does that look like? And I would be told there is no interest. We're back to it's a niche market. Um, and at best, at one institution, I was offered a Saturday to offer a one-day workshop. But everything else I was told, that's your pet project. Nobody's interested. So not knowing what to do with that, but having a captive audience in a classroom, I wove it into every single class I ever taught. 
which I think in hindsight is a better model. Instead of it being separate where you have to sign up for it, I wove it into intro. I wove it into classes on leadership. I wove it into every single thing I ever did. And my students didn't have the same preconceived notions. And so they would engage in conversation. But then they would ask me questions that I didn't know how to answer. And then we get to the book and they would they would ask, are there any writings on this? And I thought, not that I know of. And I could point them towards... But some there dis- should be. <laughs> there should be. Yeah. I could point them toward disability study things. And for some of them, that ended up being too deep of a place to begin. Um, I, I've now done this long enough where some of my former students are now doing amazing work and are probably shooting way past what I could even do. Um, but this this book was really the result of lots of conversations from students and ministers and the few who were really interested. And some of it honestly was because it was what I was wrestling with in trying to figure out how do I be more faithful theologically in the ministries where I'm serving and in ways that include everyone. Well, and the book reads, it's a very approachable book, and it reads, to me at least, it read like almost a print, like something you could use with a small group at church where it it comes at it from a doctrinal approach. So you're covering a lot of different things like ecclesiology and uh, doctrine of God, talking about the Trinity, um, talking about hospitality and chesed, um, <laughs> which is just too fun not to say. And absolutely. Um, and so was the intent that you wanted something that churches could really approach in that kind of way? I think all theology should be approachable. Um And I used to really struggle with, I wanted to write something that was brilliant, that people would say, oh, this is so amazing. Um, And I realized a lot of the brilliant things that I read just made me feel stupid, is part of the honest answer. And some of it is just even my own own biography. Um, I am the first on either side of my family to go to college. I loved learning and was really naive on a lot of things. When I went to seminary, um, and I think I, I think I put it in the book, um, there was still looming large a professor who hadn't been there for a generation, but his name was T.B. Maston. Um, but he was still such a presence on campus through faculty who were still there and who would talk about him. And his whole conversation was he never wanted to preach a sermon. His third-grade educated mother couldn't understand. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I love reading theology. I love reading difficult things, but I never want to produce something that, I don't know that it's a third-grade book. Um, No, I don't think so. Yeah, my third-grader is not remotely interested in it. Um, But I wanted to have something be so accessible that people who thought they couldn't read theology felt like they were not only at the table, but they were able to be involved in the conversation without feeling bad, without the anxiety that often comes. So let's talk a little bit about one of the chapters, just to um, provide a window into the kind of work that you're hoping people will do or things that you hope they'll think about. There's a chapter dedicated to thinking about the sovereignty of God. And in the opening, you uh, share the story of a boy. I assume his Mm -hmm. real name is not Mark. His real name is not Mark. Um, But can you talk about that? Can you tell us his story and then um, share with us how that helps us understand the sovereignty of God in a new way? Yeah. So years ago, I was um, at camp 
like you do when you're in youth ministry. And this particular ministry, we had kids from a lot of different churches. And so he was not a young man I knew, but for that week, he was in my Bible study, recreation group. He was, you know, we were our our little team that Mm -hmm. moved around and it was several different um, teenagers from different churches. And it happened to be challenge course day. And we get to the challenge course, and it's zip lines and trust falls and things that are pretty typical on challenge. Team building type of. Team building stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's early in the week. I think it was day two of camp. Um, And so we've still got the whole rest of the week. And we get to the wall, which in the land of youth ministry, in the land of kind of challenge course things, it's this wall that is ridiculously high. And then you have to work as a team to figure out how do you get every... I don't remember if it was 10 feet or 12 feet. It was really, really high. high. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I know the anxiety that I get. I'm really close to five feet tall. Mm-hmm. Um, no, almost there. <laughs> I'm almost there. So I know the anxiety that I've had in approaching that and, and feeling like, oh, gosh, what can I contribute? Well, we get there, and this young man is there, and he's clearly anxious and we're all trying to figure out what do we do and it the conversation through best of intentions from the teenagers you know i'm supposed to just kind of watch and let them work it out but the teenagers kept saying well what are we going to do about mark what do we do with mark and mark was just right at the 3 foot mark and he had already been told that he was through growing that was that was it and he was winsome and he was funny and he was gregarious and so great on a thousand levels and we get to this and i just saw him wither and as everybody's trying to figure out how do you stack people on other people's shoulders and reach back and pull people up he finally is just exasperated and he said i just feel like a waste of space and you could have heard a pin drop in this whole group and the conversation shifted. And for me, things that were great, it wasn't that I needed to intervene, but I ended up getting to be a part of facilitating a, con- a conversation. Because then other teenagers started saying, no, you're not. You're incredible. We're so glad to have you here. And I feel like a waste of space at times, too. And all of a sudden, this thing that was supposed to be about team building to get over a wall turned into this holy, sacred moment where holy ground was created at the foot of a wall, and these adolescents were having a conversation and opening up in ways that I could never have created. But then the conversation turned to, why was I made this way? Where is God in my life? Am I a waste of space? And ultimately, it comes down to, and this is the conversation I've had over and over and over, with teens, with parents, um, and the honest answer is probably, at times, I've thought it in my own life, am I a mistake? And for me, that's the core conversation, in particular in youth ministry, for sovereignty. Um, Can God make mistakes? Yeah. And so that was the story, and Mark was just such a great watershed moment for me of thinking through, how do I respond to that. I knew how to say the nice, right things as a youth pastor. I didn't know what to do with it theologically at the time. And so part of the development of this book also has been just a collection of questions, but they've almost always come from experiences with kids and me not knowing how to answer them. Yeah. 
Well, that's where a lot of theology happens, isn't it? When we feel at a loss, and so we go searching. Yep. So in the last chapter of your book, you share a little bit of your own story, which I found really helpful. So you're pregnant with your third child, and your mom starts having health problems. Can, are you willing to share a little bit of that with us? Yeah. And how that relates to this, uh, the conversation about disability and theology. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've been in youth ministry a long time. And fairly early on, I started asking questions about teens with disabilities and how they can be included and started trying to bring it up in professional organizations and different settings and writing about it. Um, And everybody thought it was really sweet that I had my pet project. Well, it became so ingrained. And like I said, I wove it into every class. So it just became a normative conversation. And I thought I had all these wonderful convictions. And my first daughter was, it was an obnoxiously easy pregnancy. Um, I can't relate. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And when she was born, we found out within 24 hours that she was born in congenital heart failure. And we ended up moving into the Ronald McDonald house. And she had open heart surgery. And we tube fed for the first three years. And it just, you know, there's there's a lot of complications there. And so for me, anytime I would look at her... There was this beautiful baby in front of me, but I was always thinking, what's it going to be like for her when she gets in youth group? Because that's the wor- the waters in which I swim. Yeah. yeah. So that's part of the, the backdrop of it. We continued to actually address her health issues on through the birth of my second daughter. And then my mom has multiple sclerosis. And so we had to move back to Arizona close to her to be able to help with some things as her health was failing. And let me re- rephrase that. She did, we, we've been in and out of the hospital more times than I could count at this point. And so I've, I've learned, while well, all my training is in youth ministry, I feel like I've got the honorary degree in gerontology. Mm-hmm. So helping my mom navigate systems and what it's going to be like for a new normal um, pregnant with my third child. And because my my daughter's health conditions, we get like the rock star sonogram. Um, so there's the normal sonogram where you go, oh, it's flat and they all look weird and fuzzy and, you know, it's a boy or it's a girl. We get the one that says, now look three-dimensionally. There are their lungs. There's their brain. And they kept having to check. And my scans were all showing an echogenic bowel. And when you look up echogenic bowels, um, it means that your child is going to be born most likely with trisomy 13, trisomy 18, or cystic fibrosis. 13 and 18, um, typically the baby will live for days or a few weeks. And so I left my regular teaching post, moved home not having any job security to help my mom whose health was failing um, and pregnant with a child we didn't know if he was going to live beyond a few weeks after being born. And I thought, doggone it, all those ridiculous things I have been writing about and thinking about, about God's goodness and the world that the Lord has 
created and inclusion of people with disabilities, doggone it if I'm not having to live every last bit of it. And although it was not me personally, and I want to be really, really careful because I think there is a difference between caregiving and being the person with a disability. But I think we need each other in order to hear those stories well. And so it was in the midst of all of that that I actually was told I could write this book and I got contacted. When I think about the title of your book and you're really reflecting on the idea of perfection, you're trying to push people beyond an achievement model of perfection, right? And I think there's a way in which you have an ultrasound and your baby is either perfect or your baby is flawed. Mm -hmm. I mean, what's a better way to think of perfection? (laughs) Well, and I kept thinking, this is not something I would have chosen. And yet, um, and this, you know, now we're back to sovereignty. And and I want to be careful. I don't think we serve this really weak, pathetic God that says, I need to throw really difficult things your way because I need to be glorified. I need to see how you handle it and see if you can bring me glory. I, I, I don't serve that God. I don't know who that God is. That is not a part of my theology, but I do serve a God who ultimately, um, and this ties into that whole chapter on sovereignty, the de jure and de facto, is there are things that are definitely not right here and now, and they will be right. Um, And so it's recognizing a both and. I think a lot of people would like to think better uh, when it comes to their theology and disability and marginalized communities and groups of people in general. Sure. So could you share some encouragement um, yeah. for Christian ministers who are who are trying to be better about integrating or whatever that word of choice would be? Yeah, I, I think for me, integration is is probably the best word that I that I know today. It could change. Because we don't want to just have somebody sitting beside us, but we're willing to truly integrate and allow there to be transformation. So I think that the hope part is ask a lot of questions. Um, Don't be afraid to say you don't know. It's an amazing thing when you talk with a family, when you talk with a young person with a disability and you ask them, so tell me, how do I best help you? It's an amazing thing. They're able to actually tell you how they can best be helped. Um, and for those who are unable to articulate the, that themselves, there are caregivers and people around. And I would argue, I don't think we have a full picture of who God is if we don't have the variety of the members of the body of Christ. This isn't about a pity ministry of, oh, goodness, look at those poor people that we need to take care of, and aren't we noble? It's we are all created in the image of God. We all have something to bring to the table, and part of the onus on us as ministers is to recognize the gifts and graces of others and then be able to find ways for those to integrate. The way I have kind of visioned this for the pragmatics of church life, but also the theological realm, is when somebody is moving into your house like a baby, usually we move furniture, you buy the weird little things you stick into the plugs so they're not going to electrocute <laughs> themselves, you baby-proof things, yeah. glass moves up high. You know, 
I, I don't know anybody who's ever welcomed a child into their home and has said, now that you're here, we're not going to move a thing. Hope you survive. Don't mess anything up. You're on your own. You're on your own. No, we, we rearrange, and it's annoying for that first week or two because you go to reach for the your cup that you always kept on a coffee table that's now moved to a different place, and you've got muscle memory that has to relearn it. But then a few weeks later, you forget that it was ever there, and you adjust to the new normal. I think when we're talking even just the pragmatics of youth ministry things, what I will hear a lot is, it's not going to be as fun if we can have the music be as loud. Because if you have somebody who has a sensory issue and you need to turn the music down a little bit, well, for the first couple of weeks, people might go, oh, gosh, this just doesn't feel the same. And then they adjust to the new normal. I think we assume that our teenagers and our leaders are not very resilient and, quite frankly, are kind of pathetic, that they need something that isn't good for everyone. And it's a great reminder of how God has created us to say we can actually adjust and adapt and we're resilient and we have things to offer and that's okay. So just like you rearrange furniture in a home and then you get accustomed to it, it may be that we need to rearrange the furniture both metaphorically and physically of our churches for better integration. I'm sure you know tons of different communities that are doing this in all sorts of different ways. Could you think of one really concrete story? I mean, you gave the example of music. Is there another example or a group that you're like, wow, I'm amazed by how they're embodying this? Yeah, I, I don't know this is a group, but it's such a poignant story. So years ago at this point, and this is probably what really parlayed me into the conversation around theology, disability, and youth ministry, I did a research project where I interviewed... I don't know, 100 families or so. But there was one family that still really sticks out. And she talked about her daughter, who at the time when I interviewed them, she was a sophomore in high school. And their church had a a tradition that they did small groups, and they had the same small group leader, 7th through 12th grade. So if you were going to sign up to be a leader, you signed up to walk those kids through youth group. Um, And so her daughter uh, has Down syndrome, and when she was in the group in seventh grade, you know, there were certainly some differences, but, you know, a lot of the girls knew her daughter, and and it was was still really good. Eighth grade, they were all still meeting as a small group. Ninth grade hit, and the older, the, the, the other girls started asking more questions, more grown up questions, more probably stereotypical teenage questions and things and so she wrote at the end of her ninth grade her daughter's ninth grade year the mom wrote a letter to say how grateful she was for all of the girls to say how grateful she was for that leader and that she had loved the way they had embraced and loved on her daughter and because she loved them she was letting them know that the following year her daughter would not join them so that they could delve deeper into their faith and ask questions that they needed. And she, this mom was being so sensitive to all of these other teenagers that she was essentially saying, I'm going to withdraw my daughter from the group. And that small group leader with her group of girls got together and read the letter, kind of a withdrawal, and they each sat down and wrote letters and said, 
we reject your letter. We reject your resignation. <laughs> we reject your resignation. Um, we are not who we are without her. We are not naive that she has different questions and concerns, and we have different questions and concerns. But she is a part of us, and we are not who we are without her. Wow. But that came from the teenagers. From ninth grade girls. From ninth yeah. grade girls. And so, indeed, she did not leave the group, and they continued. And what ended up happening is those those girls knew how to have a conversation and knew how to see the value in a friend who was differently abled but didn't see it as less than. Yeah. And so I think as we can invite people into spaces of relationship, it's amazing how much we can know about something without knowing someone. Mm -hmm. And so when you actually get to know someone, you realize, oh, wait, we have a lot more in common than, than we have different. When we really think about ministry and full inclusion, integration, belonging for people with disabilities, for teens with disabilities, for your leaders with disabilities, I don't want to be so naive and romanticize this as, oh, it's this wonderful thing that we're doing and it's always going to be easy and you're always going to feel fulfilled. Sometimes it means less sleep at camp. There are times when it means having to raise more money. There are times when it means having to advocate and push in presbytery meetings, in conference meetings, in parish meetings, and it can be exhausting. So I, I, I think as much as I love that people are wanting to have this conversation, I don't want them to feel blindsided and then give up. I want people to go in with eyes wide open, recognizing that this is ridiculous ridiculously difficult, as is any ministry that is worth its salt. And so I, I think being able to say this is hard and it's worth it. And that's a different invitation from coming out of either guilt or growth. I, I also, unfortunately, I hear a lot of, if we did this, then we could really grow. I'm not anti-growth, but that's not a solid motivation for me. We do it because it's right, and it's hard, and God is a God who is big and offers abundance, and we are able to be more of who God has created us to be when we integrate. Can I ask one more question? Sure. Just as a bonus. Yeah. Is there a question that we just forget to ask? Is there something that's not even on the radar when it comes to this conversation? I think... At this point, probably the one that's not on the radar is, or at least it's on the radar of those of us who do this all the time, but I don't hear it in other bigger picture places. And I, I alluded to it before. How do we invite our friends with disabilities into positions of leadership? Or how do we help their voices to be heard? How do we recognize and not play down to them, but to be able to hear in the ways that they communicate? what it is that God is needing for us as the church to hear, what it is for youth ministries to need to hear. For me, youth ministry, and that it'd be a whole other podcast, but youth ministry is about faith formation. It's not cognitive ascent. It's not um, getting them to, you know, not be drunk or pregnant. It's really this idea of inviting them into a sacred space 
And I think what we forget is that people with disabilities have equal access to God. We're not needing to do something for them. It's not about pity. It's about recognizing the places where we have not valued the beautiful things that they already bring. You've been listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. I'm your host, Sherry Osting. On our production and research team, we have Garrett Mostowski and Nee Otto Abrahams. Christy Holly works the creative design angle. From the whole team at Princeton Seminary, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.